So good to be back with you. If you've been with us, you know we're in this series on the book of Matthew. What you may not know is we have quietly reached the halfway point. Most commentaries divide Matthew into five blocks, right? So there's some stuff that happens in a block of teaching, stuff that happens in a block of teaching. The most famous is the Sermon on the Mount, but there's other blocks of teaching. We're in the one now on the parables. Then after Matthew 13, in fact, if you buy a commentary that's sold in two volumes, they break it up after chapter 13. So we've come really to that halfway point. So let's pause, let's take stock. What is absolutely clear? That this Jesus is not just preaching and teaching into thin air. This Jesus is calling for disciples. He is serious. He is calling you. Will you follow him? Are you for him or against him? What are you going to do with Jesus? What is going to be your commitment? And there's two things, and and, and listen, he's being very clear that to follow him is not always going to be easy. In Matthew 10, he says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves, right? He says, Jesus has never shied away from the cost of following him. Is that fair? He's always, you know, uh, 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 he says at one point, if anyone's going to come after me, he's got to take up his cross. Whoever is, wishes to keep his life, he'll lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. So he's serious. There will be a cost. There is great cost in following Jesus. At the same time, you can't deny how overwhelmingly attractive this Jesus is. What would it be like to be a disciple, a follower of that man? There's a reason Matthew leaves his tax collector booth when Jesus says, follow me. There's a reason these fishermen were so so attracted, so so moved to be a disciple. There's a reason why for 2,000 years the downtrodden and the broken and those who feel hopeless still hear it like good news. They can hear Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And millions of people have taken the Lord Jesus up on that offer to find rest for their souls. So let me ask you, which is it? We come now to to Matthew 13 and, 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 and which is it? Is it great cost to follow you, Lord Jesus? Or is it great joy? Because surely the joy should overwhelm the cost. I mean, shouldn't it? Which, which strand? What should we focus on as a church? Should we focus on the cost of following Jesus? You know, Too many people think it's a game. Too many people think you can be half-hearted. There's a cost to following Jesus. I, I suppose that, that, that's true, but, but it's almost obscene to talk about the cost when you think about what God has done in your life. All my life, the song says, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And I will sing of the goodness of God. Hadn't he put joy in your life? So which is it? Is it great cost or great joy? Because I tell you... Uh, as preachers, you'll have to forgive us, we, we tend to uh, err on one side of the pendulum to the exclusion of the other. Preachers tend to do that, so we're, we're sorry for that. Uh, there are cost preachers and there are joy preachers. i tell you this, I grew up in western Kentucky in a church out in the county. I grew up, let's put it this way, I grew up with cost preachers. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, I've been preaching at youth camps lately, and these kids just came back from Centricid, and I try to explain to them, when I was your age, we didn't have all this. We didn't have all this fun and excitement and youth-oriented messages. We had youth revival. And at youth revival, some of you know, uh, know what I'm talking about. At youth revival, they would bring in a guest speaker, and the guest speaker, remember, this is for the youth service. The guest speaker would be, no kidding, 400 years old. 
My mom's German and my dad's a brontosaurus. <laughs> and they would get that codger up there and he'd point that bony finger at us. Young people, you want to follow Jesus? This is serious business. Wipe that smile off your face. And you know the hardest time in church not to smile is when you're not supposed to smile, right? It's like impossible. No more frivolity, no more happiness, no more rock and or roll music. You know what I'm talking about? And it always came down to the cost, the path of a disciple is a lonely path. The cost of a disciple, no matter what, it seemed like it always boiled down. At one night, he would always focus on the cost. You'll owe your friend. Friends, your friends, your friends are going to bring you down. They're going to drag you down. Your friends are nothing but minions of the evil one who want to drag you into the pits of debauchery and wickedness in which they live. I remember looking up and down the pew at my friends like, well, he's right, but I love him. <laughs> the path of a disciple is a lonely path. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I remember being 12 years old, looking at my best friend Jeff like, it's over, Jeff. <laughs> and poor Jeff is like, yo, but like, I'm a Christian too. Wouldn't it make more sense if we like walk this journey together? Jeff, don't make this harder than it has to be. <laughs> you heard Colonel Sanders. It's over between us. And Jeff was imaginary. And I look back and they never see- I look back and I think, oh man, right? One thing he was sure about is there's a cost of following Jesus. Now I make fun of that, but I can't, my heart's not all the way in making fun of that because part of me is like, there's something, he's right, he's on to something, he's on, but the danger is it is to the exclusion of joy. And so now, oh, now how the pendulum has swung. Now makes me think maybe we need a few of those cost preachers again because now, oh, how the pendulum has swung. Now you turn on the television and what do you hear the message from preachers? Come, follow Jesus. He'll make your life better. He'll make everything better. You'll never have any suffering. You'll never have any sickness. All you will do is prosper. You just, you just have faith. You just name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. God wants you to be happy and healthy all the time and financially prosperous. But you just place your hand on the nail-scarred hand of Jesus and together you and Jesus frolic through meadows of happiness. And you look at that and like, I make fun of that too, but he has made my life better, you know? Every good and perfect gift I have has come from the Father of lights. So there's a kernel of truth in what he's saying too. And I, the, the problem, of course, is the exclusion. Why? If all you've ever heard your whole life is that if you become a follower of Jesus Christ, if you become a disciple and you hear Jesus call, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. And you say, yes, that's what I need. I want a life of ease. I want a life of stress-free. I've had all these problems. Now I'm going to get saved. Now I'm going to follow Jesus. Now I'm not going to have any problems anymore. If that's your fundamental understanding of the gospel, then what happens the first time you get seriously sick? What happens when someone you love dies and you go, God, why? I understand. They're the most godly people I knew. What happened? This, I wasn't promised this. What happens when you go through persecution or a hard time or a bankruptcy or a divorce and you go, God, what, what's the deal? I, I was told I would have no problems. I'm following you. And you find out that it's not true. So the danger, of course, in only talking about this great joy in following Jesus is you might lead people to think that that's all there is. But if all your understanding, so you go the other end of the pendulum, if all your understanding of following Jesus is the cost of following Jesus, what kind of witness are you? The Bible doesn't say the cost of following God is our strength. It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. So what, are you going to go to work tomorrow and be like, are you going to witness to your friends at work? Hey, you should... uh, you should also follow Jesus and you too can have the same joy I have. 
Really, bro? You don't, uh, you don't seem like you have much joy. I've got joy. Okay, okay. Where is it? It's down in my heart. <laughs> deep, deep. That's so deep. My joy will never see the light of day. Like, deep down in my heart. Come on. What good is that? So which is it? Is it great cost or great joy? Uh, I, I'm convinced that some of you, like, you're, you're a Christian, and there, there's all in, and then there's, like, almost all in. Does your life reflect the joy of the Lord? Does your life reflect joy? Could you use a little more joy? Have you considered <clears throat> this little fact about human nature? <coughs> I read this this week, and I thought, that, that's it. That's, what, that, that's it. That's it. Here's a little fact about human nature. I know this is a lengthy introduction, but I'm only preaching on one verse today. Just one verse. Jesus tells a whole parable in one verse that addresses this very thing. Here's why we got to get this right. I'm convinced that for some of you, it may just be what's killing your joy is that you're 99% committed. You ever thought about this? I read this and it immediately hit me. It's absolutely true. It's not in the Bible. It's not in scripture. But it's just something about human nature that I was like, yes. You'll either, I wonder, is there anybody like me that reads that, that reads that and goes, yes, I totally get that. The hardest thing in the world is 99% commitment. Compared to that, 100% is easy. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Which is easier, 99% commitment or 100? You might think 99. Like, for, for example, if I said to you, hey, um, listen, we're gonna, uh, I'm, I'm gonna help you on this. Your doctor's told you, you gotta give up sugary soft drinks. No more sodas for the next six months because of you know, health reasons and all this stuff. So you gotta give up, and I, you love Coke and Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper and, and you know, Pepsi's and all this. You, know, you love it so much. And so, but, but, but you've gotta give it up. You gotta get it up. But, but you, the doctor said you have two choices. You have two choices. You can either go 99% on this diet or 100%. So at first, you think the 99% would be easier, right? Because you're like, hey, I can always have a cheat Coke, right? I mean, hey, listen, 99%, like, that means at any given moment, like, of the 100 Cokes I drink in a 48-hour period, I, you see why your doctor made you, yeah. 100 Cokes I drink, one of them can be my cheat Coke. You know what I mean? And so there's always that little window of opportunity. There's always that little like way out. So 99% commitment is, uh, 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 is gonna be easier. The problem is what? Ironically, you only have so much willpower. You only have so much ability to make a decision. And so in, in an attempt to make it easier, you've actually made it harder. Because if you'll just say 100%, if you just say burn the ships, I can't have it. Now, if it's 99%, every time the waiter comes before me, what do you have to drink? You're like, is this the moment? Is this when I spend it, right? Every time you pass a vending machine, is this, Jesus left the 99 for the one, maybe I... You know, maybe I could do it, right, every time. And you're going to have decision fatigue, right? Whereas if you're all in, you're all in. And now you don't have to think about it. What do you have to drink? I'm just going to have a water and an unsweet tea and 84 packs of Splenda. Bring it on, right? Right? Whatever. But the point is you're in. You're all in. And because you're all in, you don't have the agony. You don't have the decision fatigue. You've only got so much willpower. You can't burn through that having to decide over and over, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Burn the ships. Go all in. And it's actually easier than 99%. I met a guy in Oklahoma. I was jogging at this camp. I was jogging in the morning. He was out walking. I knew he used to be the director of the camp. I knew he'd been there for years and years. And so we just struck up a conversation later. He said, hey, I saw you running. I said, oh, I saw you walking. And I knew he was an older guy, and I, I, he'd lost a, 
a bunch of weight. And so we're, we're talking about that. He said, man, I've been on this journey. It's been great. I said, well, tell me about it. He says, well, one thing I do, you saw me walking. I walk three miles every day. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, like, you know, so I was telling him about my schedule. He goes, no, you don't understand. I go three miles every day. I don't miss. He wasn't bragging. He was just telling me 100% is easier than 99. He says, so here's the deal. In Oklahoma, if we get 10 inches of snow, guess what I do? I put on my snow boots because I'm going every day. Christmas morning, I'm going every day. That way, I don't have to think about it, right? I, I, I'm out there, right? It doesn't matter. He, he, he smiled, you know, because he runs in every kind of weather. He smiled. He said, I, I'll even go walking. I'll even go on. I'll even go when the sun shines. I love that. I'll even go when the sun shines. The point is, he now doesn't, it's not, that decision's off the table. He's going. And that is actually easier. He said, he said to me, because if I allow myself a cheat day, then how do I know that every day won't be that cheat day? Makes total sense. Some of you got to go to Smith Lake for the 4th of July. Would you rather, some of you let your kids jump off those cliffs and those rocks. Uh, would you rather your kid jump off 100% or 99 it's actually easier, isn't it, just to go all in? You see how this gets more and more serious. The 12-step program, who, uh, the 12-step program to me is brilliant for lots of reasons. One of the things it's brilliant about is it, no, it, it helps the addict go to recovery. And one of the key tenets in the 12-step program is just this. Half measures avail nothing. If you're an alcoholic, one, one drink's too many and a thousand is never enough. Half measures avail nothing. So you go all in and you burn that ship and now you don't have to agonize about it anymore, right? In marriage, those vows you took, 100% committed is actually easier than 99%. It's just easier because now whatever comes at your marriage, that depression, that job loss, that sickness, that, 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 that illness, that, that all those things that can come out of marriage and you have to power through as a marriage, it is a lot easier if you say, well, whatever happens, we're going through it, we're 100%. Jackie and I, one of our favorite sayings when it's like you've decided everything there is to decide and there's no other way out, one of the things Jackie and I will say a lot of times, I don't know where we picked this up, but I love it. Nothing to it but to do it. Nothing to it but to do it. In other words, the only thing that remains in this hard thing we don't want to do is the doing it. There's no other deciding. There's no other way out. As long as you have a way out, it actually causes agony. You know, I've, I've made this point before about church attendance. I mean, if you have to decide every single Sunday is today a day we're going to go, that, it's hard enough just to get shoes on all these kids, right? And now you've got the mental anguish of knowing, are we going to go? Are we not going to go? It's much easier just to burn the ships and say, if it's Sunday, we are going. See? 100%. Now you're all in. It's actually easier. When it comes to following Jesus, I believe this may be what's killing your joy. 99% commitment is killing your joy right now. And the message today is go all in. Jesus says there's no part-time discipleship. He said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Even if you serve one master 99%, you make Jesus your master 99%, but you also serve mammon, money. That's, that's his example. God and money, 1%, or whatever it is. No one can serve two masters. And the people in the 99%, my point is, you're already paying the cost. You're just not getting the benefit of joy. It is a foolish way to live to pay 99% of the cost but not get the joy that is available to you. And people who are all in, you talk about missionaries who have gone and served the Lord in these difficult places. You hear them interviewed. And what always strikes me is not the incredible things they've overcome and all the tragedy and all the suffering. How many times, you listen for it, how many times you hear a missionary say, I never made a sacrifice. 
that as they look back on their life, the pervading theme is not cost, it's joy. So which is it, Jesus? Is it great cost or great joy to follow you? He must have been asked that question because he tells two stories back to back and they tell the exact same thing. Matthew 13, 44, and in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. In 13, 44, he talks about a man who stumbles upon a great treasure. The difference is in Matthew 13, 45 and 46, it's a man who went seeking a merchant looking for a pearl of great price. So whether you stumble upon the good news of the gospel or whether you are just seeking it with all your heart, you discover it's not just one among many. It is the pearl of great price. It is the gospel. Both of these make the same point. We're gonna focus our time on our remaining time on just the, uh, uh, just the first of these two. Is it cost or is it joy? Well, obviously it's both, but it's obscene to talk about the cost when the joy of the good news of the gospel is available to you. Here's how Jesus says it. Is it cost or joy, Jesus? Well, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Everybody got it? Do you see the elements hidden in there of both cost and joy? Did you catch them? If not, I'll reread it, and here's what I'll do. I will ever so subtly, for I am known for subtlety, I will ever so subtly emphasize where I think there's elements of both cost and joy. Let's reread. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So I don't know if you caught it, um, but <laughs> there's elements, aren't there? Now, this uh, it, it really is an, an incredible story Jesus is telling. It came to heaven like treasure in a field. Apparently, a man is uh, looking uh, at uh, a piece of real estate, or perhaps he's working the field. We don't know. But he, uh, he's noticed this particular field has been on the market for some time. He's seen the for sale sign, and he wants to make a good investment with his hard-earned denarii. But uh, he, uh, the stock market's been so crazy lately, and, and, but, but he lo- he's always had his eye on this field. He loves this field. The problem is he's done the math. He knows the asking price, and they just reduced it, which is great, but still, it w- he's done the math. It would literally take all of his net worth. He knows all his assets. He's added up. It would take all of his net worth to purchase this field. So it's kind of a pipe dream, but nonetheless, he can't allow himself to daydream. He comes by on his lunch hour, and he looks at it, and he thinks, man, I could put a barn up there. I could have livestock over here. I could have some irrigation there if that's been invented he's thinking through all these things and he he knows it's but I mean it's crazy right because it would cost everything he has and so as he's what's that at first he thinks he's tripped over the protruding root of a tree but there can be no root for there are no trees for it is a field so he goes in for a closer inspection and he begins to uncover and what's and he hits something hard what's it what pause. Now we need to leave him here. You need to understand some historical data that he would have known that will make you appreciate why his mind was suddenly blown. Back in the day, you didn't have banks that could keep your money safe like we have in this country. In fact, where, just imagine with me, do a thought experiment. Imagine with me, you're an Israelite in the ancient Near East and you have a treasure trove of money. Where would you keep it safe? I mean, you're, you're living in a little tiny one room, you know, maybe, uh, maybe clay walls, but even the clay walls, technically, well, I've got to hide it. Okay, well, where would you hide it? There's no central repository. Probably I'd bury it. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly what you do. You'd bury it. In fact, do you remember the story Jesus told? He said the man went away on a long trip, and he gave to his servants five talents, two talents, and one talent. Do you remember what the guy with the one talent who was so scared he'd lose it? Do you remember where he put it? He buried it in the ground. Exactly. So this, this, is, this is just what you, what you do. Not only were you scared of robbers, but also think about marauders. Think about foreign uh, entities that would, that would swoop down onto your people group, and they were, they were always battling each other. They are always fighting. Remember your Old Testament history? Think about how many times the Israelites would get in these skirmishes. Uh, you, you had the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Stalactites, Stalagmites. You had all these different ites, and they're always battling each other. And we learn from Scripture, like Isaiah and Daniel, what would happen? They wouldn't just come in and kill everybody. No, no, no. They would come in, they would take everything of value from your town, including your people, and they would pull them into what's called exile. And the people would live in exile, see, as slaves and workers there in the, in the new city, and everything else would be plundered. Well, that didn't last often very long before some other bigger, badder force would come in and take them down. And then the exiles would go free, just like what happened with God's people. The exiles got to come back, right? So the thing that they would do, it's very wise if you think about it. If you knew you had no power against this invading force, you know, the Philistines are coming and we'll never be able to, we'll never be able to stop it or whatever, what would you do? Quite naturally, you knew that you were going to be carried off in exile. You also knew that you or maybe your children or grandchildren would one day be able to come back. So what they needed was a little nest egg to rebuild their city. You don't want to just hand all that over to the Philistines. So what would you do? Quite naturally, all the gold, not just of a family, not just of a group of people, the gold of an entire city, the, the wealth of the entire city, all the gold, all the diamonds, quick, bring it all. In one central repository, they would dig a hole, they would bury it in the field, they'd cover it up, and then, though they would be, ah, we're taken off into captivity, then year, it might be weeks, might be months, but it might be years, they could come back, and there waiting for them was the means to rebuild all that was lost. Now, it wasn't common but it was not altogether unheard of. In fact, it was like an urban legend that there existed out there in the fields these treasure troves that for whatever reason, no one had ever come back for. So it could be that like, uh, oh, there could be lots of reasons you could imagine for that. One most likely is everybody died in captivity. They were never set free and never able to come back. And so nobody ever, it's like unclaimed freight, you know? It could be that, uh, <laughs> some of you are like this, it could be that uh, they came back but could not for the life of them remember where they buried it, you know. I'm rich, somewhere in Montana, <laughs> uh, right? Well, there could be lots of reasons. But the rule is actually uh, very simple in ancient Jewish law. Whoever owns the field owns everything in it. And this guy knew all that. Now you do too, right? The, the only modern day example I could think of would be imagine your family goes out to uh, uh, have a vacation in West Texas, random but whatever, and you go out there and uh, there's a, uh, a ranch for sale on your last day on the way back to the airport. So you're driving the rental car back to the airport and your dad is like, pull over kids, pull over. And you pull over and you're like, hey, I'm gonna buy this ranch in Texas. I'm gonna be a rancher. And you got the big, your dad's got the big cowboy hat and the kids are like, you're embarrassing us so much. Dad, please stop. No, get a picture of me, Woohoo! Uh, he jumps the fence. Look, I'm a Texas rancher, you know. Please let it in. Let's just go back to the airport. And he's like, all right. Well, this ranch would cost everything we have anyway, so... That's crazy, just a dream. All right, you know, goodbye, Texas. And absentmindedly just kicks a rock and oil shoots up. <laughs> Honey, call the bank, right? I mean, that, 
because you know those mineral rights would be super valuable within that land. So, so same thing here. This guy knows all that. There's a treasure buried. So let's rejoin him in the action. He lifts it up. He opens it up. He I mean, he can't believe the, the amount of wealth. He realizes immediately, this is not the wealth of a, of a family member. This is not the wealth of, 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 of one person. This is the wealth of a city. He couldn't spend this wealth in a hundred lifetimes. He realizes what an incredible thing this is. And he thinks, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Now, he realizes if he just takes it and carts it off, that that is, a, uh, that is stealing. That's breaking the eighth commandment. So he can't do that. But he's got to think of a way to have it. And for a long time, people who have read this, uh, they, what he ends up doing, he goes, I've got it. I've got it. I can bury a new hole, cover it up, don't tell anybody I know about it, then make the deal of a lifetime on the field. A lot of people who've read this are like, that's kind of grimy. So a couple things I'd say about that. One is, it is a little grimy, and Jesus never, Jesus uses grimy characters all the time in parables. He's not saying do that. He's not saying insider information is the point of this parable, okay? The second thing is, what he did is actually legal. If you go back in rabbinic law, that is absolutely, their law basically boils down to what a child would say, finders keepers, that, okay? Um, but, I mean, the other, the, the, the important thing to think about is, uh, it, it, uh, like, I, I once, uh, I once uh, was looking to buy a used car when I was living in New Jersey and uh, during seminary, and uh, <laughs> this really sketchy place, and I, uh, I'm taking on a test drive. It has a flat tire on the test drive. I'm like, okay, it's going to be a great car. And it's one of those where the flat tires was, like, not in the trunk, but, like, you know what I'm talking about? You have to lift up the upholstery of the trunk to get to the flat. I lift up the upholstery, and there's stacks and stacks of $100 bills. Yeah, I didn't ask any questions. <laughs> who this thing belonged to what, but I went to the bank, deposited it all, bought the car, immediately paid back, and made $5,000 on that transaction. Now, that story's not true, not a word of it. Nothing, <laughs> nothing about it. The mob is not after me. But when you heard it, when you heard it, your first thought was not, Tom shouldn't have done that. Your first thought is, what? 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 That's what Jesus is saying. What? You're, you're telling me you stumble over this field so you can get hung up in the particulars or not. But the, the fact of the matter is, you, here's what, in that moment, and by the way, it, it was technically legal what he did, so you can, you can set that to rest. But even the, the point is, he, he uh, goes home that night and he begins selling everything. Remember, because it's going to cost everything he has. So he, sorry, he, goes on, he goes on Facebook Marketplace immediately and puts his brand new camel up for sale. He sells all his, his wife's going out that night, going to put on my favorite pearl necklace. I'm selling your pearls. What are you doing? Trust me, woman. Like the, the point I want everybody to see is he's got this crazy look in his eye like he's focused on a treasure that's not here but there. Let me say that again. Everybody around him thinks he's a fool because he's got this wild look on what's coming, not what's here. It's almost like he's seen something that not everybody's seen just yet. The wild look of somebody who's seen something that not everybody's seen. His kids are playing with their toys. I'm selling your toys. Why is daddy crazy? Daddy's not crazy. Daddy's on to something. Hmm? I imagine he goes to the owner of the field. I'm here to make that transaction. Are you sure, buddy? I know you. This is a small town. I heard you've been selling everything. I didn't know it was to buy this field. Are you sure that's wise? Listen, I'll sell you the field. It's your money. But if I understand correctly, that's your entire net worth. Yep, here's my wallet. Here's my lunch. Here's my sandal. Here's my other sandal. Here's a third backup sandal that I always carry because you might have a blowout. I'm conservative. The point is, here's everything I have. Here's the deed to my house. Here's my land that I live on. Here's everything, everything. It's all yours. The guy's like, you're crazy. You know, everybody's been telling me that lately. They've even used words like fool. Gives them everything. 
Where did his family eat that night? Soup kitchen. That's where. They ate at the Salvation Army soup kitchen because they don't have any food left. Where did they sleep? They slept under a bridge. What were the conversations like between him and his wife and children? They were nasty. Hey, Dad, good call. Now we're homeless. Remember when we had a house? What's Dad talking about? Dad, all he's talking about. He's not defensive. He's not mad. Here's all he keeps saying. I can't wait for you to see it. Once you see it, once you see it, quit grinning and saying, once you see it, Dad, that's creepy and weird. And <laughs> I'm telling you, at first light, we're going to, so they walk out to the field. And they're like, where else would we go? It's literally all we own. <laughs> yeah. Kids, start digging. We don't want to dig. We wanted a home. Dig. Fine. What's this? Open it. Go ahead. The mom gathers around the kids. What is it? My favorite part of this verse is not imagining the look on those kids when they open the treasure or the wife when they open the treasure. My favorite part is to imagine the look on the man's face when the people he loves finally see what he has seen. That's what it's like to share the gospel with somebody. Can you see him? You've been blind for so many years. Can you see him? Do you see what I see? Do you see a home beyond the skies? Do you see something so much more than this? Can you get above the clouds? Do you see what I see? And when somebody else finally sees it, have you ever had that moment where somebody else finally gets saved, when somebody else finally turns their life over and surrender completely to Jesus, and it's like, I see what you've seen all along. And it's like, I called you a fool. I thought you were crazy. But it turns out, in the words of Jim Elliott, are true. He is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen to me, young people. There's going to be people in your eighth grade. There's going to be people in your, in your junior year of high school. They're going to look at you and they're going to think, well, you're fanatic about Jesus. You're all in. And they're going to, it's going to start to weigh on you. You're going to be like, well, why am I different? Am I, am I weird? Are they right? No, you've just stumbled on a richer treasure in Jesus Christ, one that fades not away. And they can't see it yet. But by your life and by your witness, maybe they will. There's going to be coworkers that are like, I don't get you. You always got a Bible on your desk, and you get, you're always talking, you're sending people Bible apps and all these texts about it. What is it with you? You're all in on this. You just stumbled over something in Jesus. Or maybe you sought it, like the man looking for fine pearls. Either way, you found something. They don't see it yet. Oh, but by your life and your witness, they will. He's the rightful owner now. As a disciple, he is the rightful owner of everything I have. In both these parables... Jesus' point is, the man went all in. Of course there's great cost, but can't you see who would talk about the cost in this deal of a lifetime? I think the most foolish thing to do is what some Christians try to do. He is not, does everybody see? The man is not a fool. He is not foolish to give up all this stuff to gain untold treasure. You are not a fool to give up everything you have. The foolish thing, the most foolish thing, would be to sell 99% of what he had and not have enough to get the field. Now he's, he's, he's paid all the cost but isn't getting the joy. Can I say that again? The most foolish thing in the world would be to be 99% committed as a Christian because you're paying all the cost but you're not getting any of the benefit. You're not getting the joy that comes with total surrender, 100%. So if I'm talking to you this morning, where's that 1%? Eh, 
you know, is it 99% commitment? But what would it look like for you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going all in on the Lord Jesus. What would it look like for you to say, I'm all in on my marriage. I'm all in for the glory of God. I'm building up this local body. God has called this church to do incredible things. Some things they've done have been very, very costly. Some of you who have loved ones on the mission field right now, there's this kind of cost you're paying. God will continue to do very costly things. But who can focus on the cost when the joy of knowing him and loving him and growing in him is factored into the equation? It becomes obscene. It becomes pointless to talk about the cost. All I want to talk about is more of Jesus and more of Jesus. You know, I went back and looked. March 26, 2017 was my very first sermon here at Coleman First Baptist Church. And my text was Matthew 13, 44. Joy. That's the only theme I want for my family, for this church, that the joy of the Lord would be the theme of this church. Of course there's sacrifice. Of course God God is going to call some of you to the mission field. He's already, he's touching your heart. You're already witnessing. You're ministering in such a way. Some of you are giving in such sacrificial ways. Of course there's great cost. Oh, but the joy. What about you? What's that 1%? Is it a, 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 are you all in on those devotion times with your Lord? Or 99%? What would it look like to say, I'm all in on church attendance. I'm all in on building people up. I'm all in. Don't let uh, that 99% rob you of joy that could be yours. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. It occurs to me, every time I look at this passage, it occurs to me that, um, you know, in, in a larger sense, <laughs> in a deeper sense, I mean, every time I look at that, that verse, I do think that because the way Jesus told him and because where he told him in Matthew, it strikes me that the that, the interpretation of that passage is that for the disciples of Jesus, they are to go all in, that half measures avail nothing. I think that is absolutely the main point of that text. However, I can't help but think, since it was not too long after that, that Jesus went to Jerusalem. Do you remember this? He went through the triumphal entry. He was betrayed by a friend, Judas. He had the Last Supper and then was betrayed. He um, went through a mockery of a trial, and they hung him up on an old Roman cross. They drove nails in his hands, nails in his feet, put a crown of thorns in his brow. They mocked him. They spit upon him, and he hung there, and he bled, and he died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, when he hung there and bled and died, Christians believe he was not just a martyr dying, for his cause, but rather something, a transaction was happening in heaven that affects you. Something was happening wherein he was, he was actually not just a, a man who died. He was the, the son of God. He was the sacrificial lamb who died in our place and for our salvation. So the wrath for sin that we deserve was laid across the sinless, spotless lamb of God, Jesus. And the righteousness that Jesus had when he died on that cross, he now, because he paid all of sin, he now offers the right standing with God the Father to all who place their faith and trust in him and believe. So he took our sin, we take his right standing with God, a two-way transaction, a glad exchange. Um, I have this hunch that when Jesus told that parable, yes, it's about you, disciples, going all in for Jesus, but can you not hear in that that Jesus was telling that about himself. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he went and in his joy, sold everything he had and bought that field. What if Jesus is the one who, though he was rich, he became poor. He sold off everything, as it were, to strip down and become a little baby born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. Though he was rich, he became poor. And why did he do it? To buy something, to redeem, to pay for, to purchase, to own, 
to buy back a big old planet, a big old field, biggest field you can imagine, the field called planet Earth. Let me say it again. Though he was rich, he became poor to purchase, to redeem, to pay for it, to buy a big old field called planet Earth. If I'm right, then you know where I'm going. That makes the treasure dead and buried in the field you. You are what he treasured. Me, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not worth it. Oh, are you? I'm sorry. Are you telling me heaven's best would step out of heaven's throne room and come and be born in a stinky manger and die on a sinner's death on the cross for you? Jesus, I'm not worth That's not for you to determine. I, you're telling me you would, you would step out of heaven and you would, you would take off heaven's royal robes of righteousness and have a mocking robe put on your back as they beat you and whipped you on the way to the cross? Yeah. Are you telling me you would take off the crown of glory and have a crown of thorns mashed into your brow? Are you, are you telling me, Jesus, that you would leave heaven and come to a cross? And Jesus answered not with his lips, but with his life. I'm not 99% in. I'm all in. I think I can prove it. I think I can prove it. Hebrews chapter 12 begins this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, hmm, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us, watch this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Let us consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Did you catch that? What was on Jesus' mind? Why did he go to the cross? Why did it literally say he endured the cross, scorning its shame? Why? For the joy that was set before him. He wasn't focused on the cost. He was focused on the joy. And what was the joy that was set before Jesus? Jesus is eternal. What did Jesus have after the death, burial, and resurrection that he didn't have before? Answer, you, in right relationship with God the Father. That's what. And the joy on Jesus' face when he gets to see you reunited with your heavenly father is the joy that held him on that cross. It's love for you and me that held him up on Calvary's cross. The Bible says he did it for the joy. He said, what could give a man strength to go through the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection? Answer, joy. The joy of the Lord was Jesus Christ's strength. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he treasures you. Can you imagine? He didn't pay 99%. Jesus paid it all. He went all in. Some of you need that 1% surrender today. We bow your head, close your eyes. God, grant to us that we might have the grace to surrender fully to you in any area we're fighting you or we're holding back that there would be a complete obedience to you, a recommitment. We heard about these young people that got saved and rededicated. Maybe we need to do that right here today, this morning. Oh, God, thank you for your grace. If there's anybody here who they need to take that step, they need to be saved, or maybe they've been saved for a long time, but they need to be baptized, and they're wrestling with that so much. It's like they're 99%. Oh, Lord, grant them the grace to take that next step of faith, whatever it is. Lord, if there's, if there's somebody who's, whose marriage is, is, is really on the rocks, oh, God, at least cement that 100% commitment that there's nothing to it but to do it. They'll get through it with your power and your grace. And if there's somebody here that's not yet saved, let today be the day of their salvation. They might say, I'm 0%. Lord, let them be saved today. I do all this and we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand?